excited. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you that we can be here together on such a gorgeous, spectacularly beautiful Sunday morning in one of my favorite places in all the world to be. Some of my favorite people in all the world, Lord. I'm just so grateful. Jen, I'm so grateful, Lord, that we get to do this and be here and be part of this family. We pray, Lord, in such gratitude for your love for us. We exalt you. We glorify you. We say to you that you are indeed our King and our Lord and the God of all of us. And we just so thank you for loving us as you do. Now, I pray, Lord, that as we spend some time in your word, that the same spirit that inspired these words would speak them into our hearts so personally, so directly, that when we leave, we'll understand even more how we can experience all that you have for us, how we can experience the fullness of the abundant life of Jesus, how we can experience what it is to be fully led and empowered and used and blessed by the God of the universe. Teach us that. Show us that. On a new level, I pray for me and us. We pray for that insight by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, perhaps you saw the funeral services yesterday for uh, Prince Philip at Windsor Castle, St. George's Chapel. Uh, one of my uh, real honors over the years has been to teach in the doctoral program at Dallas Baptist University, and we always take a co cohort every summer to Oxford University. It's a hard job, but somebody's got to do it. It's suffering for the Lord. And, and so we quite often make our way out to Windsor Castle. So this is St. George's Chapel at Windsor Castle. Their chapel's a little bigger than our chapel, just a little bit. And Windsor Castle is, well, it's the royal family's second home, as it were, kind of their country home, a little bigger than our villa down the way, just a little bit. And this is the chapel in the castle. If you saw the images, I mean, it's really remarkably spectacular place. And this is, I mean, it goes back to the medieval ages. It started being built in the 12, 1300. A lot of it was built in the 1500s, 1600s. Henry VIII is buried there. I mean, it's an incredible place. And you walk in, and this is part of the chapel that you see there. Uh, the ceiling is so spectacular that you really want to stand and stare at it, but you get a crick in your neck. So they put a mirror on the ground, and you can look down to look up, which is kind of a parable of sorts. If you saw the service yesterday, the nave outside where the small choir was and the buglers were is usually where the pews are and where most people come to worship. And then the choir on the inside is where the service itself was being held. Really an iconic image, I think, if I can back up to that, of Queen Elizabeth sitting by herself at her husband's memorial service. A lot of the coverage yesterday of the service was saying that will be one of the things that will be remembered from the service as they're sitting for the first time, 73 years of marriage, sitting by herself at her husband's service. Something else that I thought was kind of interesting in the service, go ahead to this, in uh, royal protocol, he was required from the moment she became queen to always in public walk two steps behind her, like you see right there. That was just royal protocol. Didn't have to do that inside the house, but when they were in public, when they were in official settings, he always, as the consort to the queen, longest living consort, she's been on the throne longer than anybody in British history, and he obviously the spouse of the royal, uh, longer than any other, but always had to walk two steps behind her. Yesterday, for the first time, she followed him. That's his casket there, and if you see the limousine on the far side, that's where the queen was. First time, she followed him. And then something else I thought was interesting. Here is the place where his remains are interred, literally in the floor. 
you can't see it there, but uh, they have a mechanism, and uh, there's a place where they literally lower the remains down in the floor. I think they're 24, if I'm not mistaken, different royals that are buried at various places in St. George's Chapel, and that's where his remains are buried now, but that's not where they'll be permanently. When Queen Elizabeth II dies someday, if the Lord tarries, her remains will be placed in their family chapel, what is known as King George VI Chapel, which looks like that. That's where her parents' remains are. That's where her sister's remains are. That's where her remains will be placed. And at that time, his remains, Prince Philip's remains, will be exhumed and placed next to hers and be permanently buried next to hers in this little chapel. It's a little chapel off of the nave. If you, I could go back and show you where it is on the larger uh, chapel and all that, just a small place. And 1952 is when that was built, when her husband, when her father died. And that's where she'll, her remains will be and his as well. Well, I say all of that to say, in the midst of all the coverage of all of this, or something, a lot of them got wrong. The journalists kept getting this wrong. A lot of the coverage of this I've seen in the news wrong. They keep getting it wrong. They keep saying Prince Philip is buried there. And that's not true. Because he knew Jesus as his Lord, apparently later in his life came to a very deep relationship with the Lord. On April the 9th, when he took his last breath here, he took his first breath there. He's not there. That's where his remains are. That's where the car is, but he stepped out of the car and gone in the house, you know? I mean, our car's in the garage down there, but we're not in it anymore. This is just a vehicle. This is just the means to the end, right? He stepped from death to life. He stepped from time to eternity. I love that kind of poetic statement. Imagine, think of, breathing new air and finding it celestial, of hearing new music and finding it angelic, a feeling, a touch, and finding it God's. That's what happens for a believer. Jesus said, he who lives and believes in me shall never die. Prince Philip is more alive than we are right now. He's not there. You won't spend eternity at a chapel. You'll spend it in paradise, right? And the amazing good news is, while he is with God, God is with us. That's what I've been saying, Easter Sunday, last Sunday, Jesus is just as alive today as he was when he rose from the dead. He's just as active in the world today as when he first walked this planet. Jesus is just as ready to be active and alive and intimate and transforming in your life today as he was the first followers 20 centuries ago. It's not about religion. It's not about Sunday and Monday. It's not about spending a little time reading the Bible and praying to check the God box. It's about a personal, transforming, daily, intimate relationship with the living Lord Jesus, who's just as alive now as he ever was. But there's a catch. And that's what I want to talk about with you today. I want to talk for a minute about Jesus' most shocking story, and then let's see how that story relates to us and how we can experience all of God there is in our lives today, all right? So we're in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verse 10, where Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Jesus' parables were so remarkably relevant in large part because they were set in exactly the circumstances of the day. This stuff happened all the time. The stories he's telling, he's not making up. These things happened all day. And as was the case here, there's this Pharisee, there's this tax collector, they go up to the temple to pray. Well, why would they do that? In Jewish tradition, you pray three times a day. Psalm 55, 17, evening, morning, and at noon will I pray. You may remember this story from Daniel 6, where Daniel went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day, prayed, gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. 
The reason the Muslims pray five times a day is to do two more than the Jews. Because the Jews pray three times a day, so Muhammad wanted more, so he went to five as opposed to three. So it's even today, observant Jews will stop three times a day and pray. They'll typically face toward Jerusalem, just like Muslims pray toward Mecca. Muhammad had his followers originally praying toward Jerusalem when his followers, when the Jews rejected his movement, he had them turn their back on Jerusalem by praying toward Mecca, and that's why they do that. But if you're ever on a plane flying to Israel, with some, if you're on El Al or on one of the flights with a lot of observant Jews, they know when those hours are, and they know where Jerusalem is, and they will stop and they will pray three times a day. Very traditional, very much a part of the case. Well, wherever you are, you face toward Jerusalem. Every synagogue discovered in Israel except one faces toward Jerusalem. The one in Magdala faces toward the east, and no one can figure out why. But all the others face toward the temple in Jerusalem. So if you're Jewish, you'd know where the temple is. Some, I'm, I'm terrible at directions, but I think it's over there. I think it's that way. If you go far enough, it's that way, but I think it's that way. So you know where the temple is, and three times a day you pray. If you're near the temple, you go to the temple. Or as the text says, they went up into the temple because the temple mount is up. That's the temple mount as it is today. And uh, what you see there is the Dome of the Rock. You're familiar with that. The temple in Jesus' day was two and a half times taller than the Dome of the Rock. Massive, massive structure. And 2,500 feet above sea level is where this is. From any direction, you have to go up to the temple. That's why the Bible's always talking about going up to Jerusalem because it's elevated, and even in Jerusalem going up because that's the highest point in Jerusalem, Mount Moriah, where the temple was built. And so they're going up to the temple to pray. Happened all the time. All right? As these two were going up, Jesus picks a Pharisee and a tax collector. Couldn't get further ends of the social spectrum than these guys. All right? So let's see how the first one prays, the Pharisee, as Jesus is quoting this. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prays like this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, is how the Pharisee prays. And you think, okay, Jesus has got to be making this up. Jesus has got to be exaggerating. Absolutely not. We have papyrus, we have writings from the first century in which Pharisees are recorded as praying just like that. So why would they do that? Well, you and I look at Pharisees very differently than they did in Jesus, period. Pharisee means separated one. There were never more than 6,000 of them. They grew up during the period when there was no temple, when it had been destroyed. They essentially saved at least civic Judaism. They were the most devoted, the most religious, the most committed people in the land. They, they'd identified 613 laws, and they kept each of these as best they could. They lived every minute of every day by the minutia of the law. They were the Marine Corps. They were the Green Beret, whatever, they, whatever you think of. They were the best of the best of the best of the Judaism of the day, and everybody else venerated them for it. They were, couldn't have been more highly respected in Jesus' period for the degree to which they were seen as being so religious, as being so devoted, as being so committed to the religion of the day. And so what he's saying is true. He's not making this stuff up. This Pharisee is thanking God that he's not like these other people. He's not an extortioner. He's not unjust. He's not an adulterer. It's not like this tax collector. That's the negative. On the positive side, he says, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. The Jews were only required to fast one day a year on the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisees fasted twice a day, sun up to sundown, would only drink water. Typically did that on Monday and Thursday. 
because that was the market day when more people would come to town and watch them fasting, all right? Fasting twice a day. And I tithe of all that I get, not just his financial income, but everything he had. In Matthew 23, Jesus talked about the Pharisees actually tithing on their spices, on their cumin and their dill and their mint. Be like you go to lunch and you put some salt and pepper on your lunch, but you set aside a tenth of the salt and pepper you shake on your food to donate. That's how specific, that's how detailed, that's how committed, religious these Pharisees are, all right? And that's how this fellow's praying in Jesus' parable, because that's what they did. Now, we get to the next guy. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. So we've talked about tax collectors over the years and who they were and what they were. The shortest version of that, when Rome took over a land, they did that primarily so they could have tax revenue from it, and they figured out pretty quickly on people could lie to somebody from Italy that didn't know the language of the customs, so they'd always find a turncoat who lived out here in Grayford and knew what your property was worth and could speak your language and knew where you had all your bank accounts and knew about your family connections and knew your inheritance you're not telling anybody about and knows all about your business. And that turncoat would therefore tax you whatever Rome said you had to pay and could add to that anything he or she wanted, and there was not a thing you could do about it. Because the Roman soldiers were there to protect the tax collector. It'd be like a Jewish rabbi that started gathering taxes for the Nazis, and not only made you pay the Nazis what the Nazis required, but added to that whatever he wanted, and there wasn't anything you could do about it. Those were the tax collectors. Couldn't have been more despised, couldn't have been more hated. There's actually, I read this the other day, there's actually a statue they found to an honest tax collector. Yeah, found that not long ago, and it says at the bottom, an honest tax collector. That's how unusual honest tax collectors were. So if you work for the IRS, I'm sorry. We're not mad at you. This isn't about you. My mother actually worked for H&R Block at one point, and she hated it when I'd talk about tax collectors at church because, you know, she's not the tax collector. She's the tax preparer, she would tell me, which is a completely different thing. But be that as it may, in their day, the tax collector would stand far off. He'd be in the court, what was called the court of the women, where people could come to pray, but he'd be way off in the distance. He'd be off where really no one would see him. He's way off in the distance. He would not lift up his eyes to heaven. That was the typical means of Jewish prayer. We pray with their heads bowed. They typically prayed looking up, typically, typically prayed looking up to God. It'd be like we'd say, he would not even bow his head. He would not even fold his hands, would not even close his eyes. would be kind of the same idea, all right? In fact, he beat his breast which is what Jews did when they were in mourning, when they had lost someone they loved, when they were in the deepest, most abject grief, is when they would beat their breast like this. And he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Greek says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The sinner. And everybody's hearing Jesus' story, and they're saying, well, yeah, I mean, of course he prayed that way. That's what he should be doing. He is the sinner. Let me tell you what he stole from me last week. Let me tell you how corrupt he is. Let me tell you how awful he is, a turncoat, a traitor to his people, to his religion, to his cause. You've got this great saint over here, this Pharisee, this, this devoted religious person, and you've got this worst of the worst, this scum of the earth spiritually over here, this Pharisee, the sinner. He better pray like that. He better beat his breast like that. That's what he should say. That's what he should do. That's what he should get. It's what everybody's thinking. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man 
went down. Remember, they went up to the temple, went down to his house justified rather than the other. And you could have heard a pin drop. Imagine that the service yesterday wasn't for Prince Philip. Let's say it was Billy Graham's funeral back some years ago. And I stood up here and I told you a story about an ISIS terrorist and Billy Graham. And then I told you the terrorist went home justified and not Billy Graham. Kind of the idea. Nobody could believe it. And then Jesus explained. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And here's the point of the parable as I see it. And as it relates to this trajectory we're on, this journey we're on, this Easter, post-Easter, how can every day be Easter? How can we meet the risen Christ every day? How can we be changed by the living Christ every day? If I compare myself to others, I'm a Pharisee. When I compare myself to God, I'm a tax collector. And that's your choice. It's a binary choice. If we compare ourselves to others, there's always somebody we're more religious than, right? I mean, here you are on Sunday morning. You showed up at chapel. Voluntary, no membership. You know, you're getting no extra credit for this that I know of, anyway. You're just here because you chose to be here. How many people did you pass to come to chapel today? When I mean, you're the good guys. I'm preaching to the choir of the choir here, right? How easy it is, isn't it, to see the news and just be so glad I'm not there. Be so glad I don't do that. Be so glad I'm not like that. How easy it is when we compare ourselves to others to justify ourselves. How easy it is to find somebody, some tax collector, somebody out there we're better than. And then, as Jesus says, exalt ourselves. Only if I compare myself to what God wants me to be am I as humbled as I need to be. St. Francis of Assisi that said, whatever a man is in the sight of God, that he is and no more. I heard this years ago and I found it to be true. The closer you get to God, the further away you realize you are. How does all of this relate to our theme? Just like this. God can't lead those that won't follow. He can't give what we won't receive. If we have justified ourselves because we're comparing ourselves to others and we're more religious than other people, we're missing the abundant life of everyday Easter. We're missing the abundant life of Jesus being all Jesus wants to be today. We've chosen religion over relationship. We've chosen comparing ourselves to others over comparing ourselves to what God wants. We've chosen to be Pharisees. Probably didn't want to, didn't vote for it, didn't wake up and say, I think I shall be a Pharisee today. But if we fall into the pattern of measuring ourselves by others rather than by God's best, we miss God's best. Does that make sense? And it's so easy to do because it's how the rest of the world works. What I'm asking you to consider today, you're not going to hear anyplace else but right here. The rest of your life, all across the days and weeks to come, you're going to live in a culture that measures you by others. 
You're going to live in a culture that is competitive. You're going to live in a culture that says you are what you do. You are what people think of what you do. You are what you have. You are how you look. You are how you perform. You are what you are. That's what your culture is going to tell you, isn't it? And understandably, I'm not trying to be naive here, how do you do a consumer-based economy and not do that? I mean, how do you make money and not do that? I'm not suggesting if you're a doctor, you stop caring what your patients think. Please, don't do that, all right? I'm not suggesting if you're in business, you stop caring what your clients or your customers think. I don't think you want me, I don't think, to stop caring what people think about what I write or say. Of course not. I'm not, not trying to be naive here. What I'm suggesting is that your highest source of value, your ultimate sense of self, must not be found in what others think, but in what God thinks. Your ultimate sense of who you are is to compare yourself to God's best, not what your world thinks. Because when you do that, that's when you say, Lord, I need you to lead me because I can't lead myself. Lord, I need you to give because I can't, I can't make this myself. Lord, I need your wisdom. I need your forgiveness. I need your strength. I need you to make me what I can't make myself. And boy, does he love to answer that prayer. The first of all the Beatitudes is the foundation of the Sermon on the Mount, and I would say the entire Christian life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who know how much they need God, because then they experience God. So you're going to go out into a world that tells you you are what you do, and I get that. But I hope you'll say to yourself, you are what God says you are. hope you'll say to yourself, Lord, I am going to measure myself not by being better than other people, not by being more religious than other people, but I'm going to ask you for your best for me. And I'm going to say like the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. God, give me your best. Help me to experience all of Jesus. Help me to experience the risen Christ. Help me to experience the living Lord Jesus. I won't settle for Sunday. I won't settle for Easter being just on Easter. I won't settle for religion. I will settle for nothing less than your best for me. I will compare myself to your best for me. I hope that will be your decision today. It comes down to this. Would God say you are a Pharisee or a tax collector today? So let's pray. Take this moment, just you and the Lord, and understand, please, how loved you are. How loved you are by the God of the universe who chose his son's death that you could have eternal life. Who said no to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane so he could say yes to you on the cross. Recognize how loved you are today. Take a moment to realize how much your father has a good, pleasing, and perfect will for your life. How much he has plans to prosper you and not harm you and give you hope in the future. Recognize that your father has a best for you that is so much greater than you can imagine. That his thoughts are higher than your thoughts and his ways than your ways. Understand that he has a best for you that the world cannot begin to offer or even understand. And not right now, would you say to him, Lord, I want your best for me. Good enough is not good enough. Being better than others is not good enough. Being more religious than somebody else is not good enough. I want nothing less than a transforming daily experience with the living Lord Jesus. Would you tell God that in your own way? Tell him you want nothing less than his best.
nothing less than a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. Father, that's my prayer as well. That's my heart as well. That's my desire as well. So grateful to know, Lord God, that if your son tarries and someday we're buried, we're not buried. Someday when we die, we don't die. Someday when the world holds a funeral, you hold a celebration. And the world says we're dead. You say we're more alive than we've ever been. We thank you for that fact. But God, help us not to wait till then. Help us not to wait until we go to heaven to experience heaven. Jesus, help us not to wait until we stand before you in paradise to experience you on earth. Help us to settle for nothing less than your best through the humility that asks for what only you can give. That's my prayer for me, for us, in gratitude for such grace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. Have a great weekend.